Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm one of today's co-hosts, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-host of Biotech 2050. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a two-sided marketplace where we're organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. I'm excited to welcome Andy Prodder, Chief Scientific Officer at Oranza, to the podcast. Andy, thanks so much for joining us today. We'd love to start off just learning about your background and how you got to where you are today. I'm a New Yorker. I was trained as a biochemist at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. I was amongst the, the first generation of molecular biologists where first kind of group cohort to come out and make cDNA clones and do sequencing by hand. And so with that excitement came the passion for doing something special with that. And that got me into uh, drug discovery and development. And what are you working on here at Aranza? So at Aranza, what we're trying to do is, let me take a step back. I, I have spent 35 years in research and development and put several molecules, peptides and proteins, small molecules into the clinic, have been fortunate enough to be associated with several molecules that went all the way and have been successful. It came a point where I, I met Peck Lum, who's one of the founders of the company, who was trying to use artificial intelligence technology to do R&D for drugs. And having spent my life doing it the old-fashioned way, I was very excited to see if there's a, a new way to do what, what I've been doing for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. Now, I know from our prior conversation, it sounded like you've been working with many sort of pretty storied companies in the biotech community. Yes. Uh, maybe before getting into Aranza, you know, would love to hear a little bit about what that experience is like and some of those other companies and maybe set a foundation for the work you're doing today. Sure. Prior to joining Aranza, I was 10 years working with David Hung at Medivation. I was uh, vice president of preclinical and was responsible for doing the preclinical work for a number of projects, including uh, what we called MDV3100, which became enzalutamide for prostate cancer. And we also put uh, molecules into the clinic and in licensed some very exciting molecules, a PARP inhibitor. So it was a very uh, exciting time, a very important time uh, for us as well as for the patients that we served. So it was very good. Before that, I was with a company called Sios, and we were really focused on cardiovascular, and we got involved with the cloning and the categorization of peptides that are made in the heart, I initiated a program, a development program called BNP, or Natricor, and we brought that from cloning, put it into the clinic for congestive heart failure, and got the drug approved for acute decompensated heart failure. So several uh, opportunities in both companies using what, what I would call the virtual model, and that is both companies were very, very small and didn't have the luxury of having like mature development staff, you know, toxicologists, PK Admi, manufacturing, all of that was done virtually. And over time, we just tended to rely on that more and more. Mm. And, and now at Medivation, in fact, not only were we using the virtual model for uh, things like manufacturing and PK, uh, but also for um, uh, medicinal chemistry, for research efforts as well. So it really blossomed to become a, a major way of uh, discovering drugs as well as developing them. And on the virtual model, there are still some companies that hire 
in rapid succession after raising a particular round of financing. And I have my own viewpoints on the virtual model, but would love to hear your thoughts on, you know, what are the pros and cons of the virtual model and how you've been able to effectively navigate that from company to company? It is quite curious how uh, when, when companies start off, and this was this, whether it was at, at Sios or at Medivation, you start off and you're responsible for just about everything. And then you, 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 know, you get something into the clinic and you get funding and you're a little bit more successful. And now all of a sudden there are whole departments doing many of the things that you were doing by yourself. And so yeah. it's a natural way of progressing. But it starts with an organization that is too poor to have the luxury of having you know, a person representing each discipline that's required for putting a drug into the clinic and testing it. And so it's perfect for startups as long as one knows strategically what you want to do, what has to happen, then one can easily find the different subject matter expertises, if I, if I could use that term, uh, like the toxicologist, the CMC people, the PKADME, the regulatory people. You can find these people and they come in and contribute and then they leave. So you have them when you need them. In that context, however, as a program evolves, especially coming from a scientific perspective, and you also made the comment that it's not easy, namely, the first pass might not necessarily work, and there has to be continued investment, iteration, et cetera, to be able to truly get a drug to succeed. How do you accommodate that in this episodic interaction that's dynamic with individuals who might not be with the company for a long period of time, and they're not spending every waking minute thinking about the compound and its problems, et cetera? That's right. That's why it does work, but it is a lot of work for people like myself who rely on it. So I'm the one who is thinking about the drug all the time. Got it. And then when the manufacturing person comes in or the toxicology or we all get together, it is my responsibility to make sure that the right questions are being asked and we're tracking things and we could say, you know, I think your timelines, we should pad a little bit or, you know, we need a redundant plan in case that doesn't work. It's not, how should I say, it doesn't run itself. <laughs> yeah, you know, notice that a lot of folks in, in your position that are effectively able to leverage external expertise in the way that you're doing, there has to be a mindset shift in a, in a way where you're going from the one that's actually doing the experiments, et cetera, et cetera, to being a really skilled general or orchestrator. Yeah. So first, one has to kind of accept the fact that to do it this way, you need to really be, and I am, passionate about what we're doing because you work really hard and uh, if my wife was here she would like <laughs> day and night I mean it really is a passion uh, you know you have your mind on there are people dying and and what are you going to do to help them so that's a really important thing to get out there you have to work really hard but there's a good reason to do that and you have to be thinking you know what is it that I can do that will get a potential new drug to patients to see if it's going to work so you just have to keep pushing. It's not like we have a magic, whether it's an Aranza or Medivation, uh, a lot of what you do does not work. And you have to really love it, love the process, because there'll be uh, frustrations, there'll be failures, but you have to just keep, keep swinging. Mm -hmm. And that's what we do. 
And I uh, would love to unpack some of the work that you're doing here at, yeah. at Aranza. So where are you right now from a development perspective and what are the hopes and dreams that the team has here? Well, I think first a recognition that Peklam had this really great idea that there is a place for artificial intelligence in some of the real nitty-gritty parts of drug discovery and development. And we're talking about lead compounds to put, not that it may or may not be a development candidate, but it's a start for medicinal chemists. Better characterization of disease populations and how to put all that together in a way that we can appreciate it and use it to develop drugs. It's exciting. It's, it's different. And over the next few years, we're going to put it to the test. One of the molecules, uh, one of the leads that came out of this engine, this artificial intelligence engine, we used medicinal chemistry to improve its drug-like properties. Um, it works in models of liver cancer, both in cell culture and in vivo. And we have advanced it now into development. So we have, and this is where the the true virtual model comes in where we brought in all development people like toxicologists and PK and regulatory and manufacturing. We've now manufactured at kilogram scale. We have completed non-GLP tox. We have just completed GLP tox. We have uh, just submitted to the FDA a briefing package that will ask them questions about what our IND might look like mm -hmm. and just to see if they agree with our strategy and the data that we're, uh, and you know, their, their, their comments about what we would like to do with it in the clinic. And so uh, we're going to put it to the test. <laughs> it's very exciting. I, I like what I've seen, what I see so far. Um, and I'm, like I, as I mentioned before, it's really phenomenal to think that there may be a, another way to do drug discovery and development from the way that I have been trained to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe maybe it, it won't work all the time, or maybe it's not better. Mm -hmm. It's different. And it, 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 I would just ask everybody who's thinking about this, imagine there's a different way. Yeah. And this might be one of them. Yeah. yeah. And in terms of some of the approaches that you take and some of the tactics to make the model work, it's obviously a, a big diversion from the way drugs have historically been developed, perhaps for the better. But it brings to bear questions around how do you communicate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you organize data? How do you think about culture? All the pieces that might not be front and center in a pitch deck, but are all critical Absolutely. foundational parts. We'd love so, to hear your thoughts on yeah, that. Yeah, 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 it's very important. So communication, the major parts to this puzzle is how do you communicate, but do it in a way that's safe mm -hmm. so that novelty, you know, proprietary information is not just out there. Mm -hmm. We're talking about being able to share structures of novel molecules and how do you do that and maintain intellectual property? And so there are ways to do it that uh, don't involve email, <laughs> if I will. Um, and you know, there are a number of companies like CDD where you can store a lot of information and it's safe and it enables us to put hundreds of molecules in the data associated with hundreds of molecules and then share that information in a safe platform. And then from a, uh, we use um, the more traditional, we use box, mm -hmm. we use, there's, there's ways where you, know, you can only get in if you have the right, I don't even know, because I try and, I, I'm still not very good at inviting people <laughs> to something that's really uh, secret, so I, I let other people do it, so I do it right. <laughs> but anyway, but there are ways to share information and slide decks, but even there, we oftentimes strip away the real 
important structures IP. Yeah. and IP. So you have to be mindful of that and, um, and proceed carefully. Yeah, for sure. And you know, that's one of the areas where um, we at Ignite have certainly seen a lot of companies think strategically about the aspect of firewalling data, right? Yes. From one party to the other, yep. being able to also potentially hive off uh, programs and projects, uh, yep. especially as they partner and think about the evolution of their pipeline. So uh, I'm glad to hear that you guys have developed at least some processes, right? Yeah. And some philosophy perhaps around doing that. And you have to also um, be able to make sure that the people you're working with also adhere to those processes. So for mm. example, we rely quite a lot on medicinal chemists outside the United States. We use several groups, but I will certainly mention IBS in India. They are just a phenomenally skilled group of medicinal chemists. And uh, we made sure that they have internal protections so that the structures that they're making for us don't wind up on somebody else's server or somebody else's email or whatever. So uh, you have to be able to uh, really appreciate the people that you're working with, that they will follow the same commitment to keep things proprietary, confidential, that you, you know, would expect. If you think about IP protection, particularly when you're outsourcing to, let's say, India or China, and a lot of folks haven't necessarily gotten over that hump of how to leverage expertise outside the U.S. that might not have the same protections around uh, intellectual property that we have here, what, what advice would you provide them? Well, first, I have tended to be very, how should I say, conservative, and I go to intellectual property people who really know that art. Yeah. And they will tell you that if you're going to be doing a lot of work with novelty in, in India, there's all these tricks that you have to make sure, okay, if, if one of the inventors is in India, you have to file in India first. Or, you know, there are hundreds of rules, and so you need to have the people who know those rules. And if you do that, then you'll be fine. So, you know, I want to go back to maybe a topic that you alluded to earlier around sort of preparation for this new mode of drug development, this new life sciences industry, especially as a younger scientist, right? Whether you be in academia yes. or early in your career. And I think, you know, one of the interesting comments you made, which was, I think, perhaps offhand, but I think very insightful was the job that you're training for may not be the actual job that's in demand. That's right. Right? Everything is changing right now. And I like to use the example of medicinal chemistry. And I'm not a medicinal chemist. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm going to go a little bit out on the limb on this one. But, but we started working with a group of medicinal chemists about a little over 10 years ago. And they were highly skilled. They were able to make any structure uh, that we asked them just about. They didn't know drug discovery and development, but they were skilled medicinal chemists. Over time, they developed an understanding of the ins and outs of what makes a molecule a good drug candidate. And so then they were able to make suggestions about what to make. So it started off, these group could make anything, but we had to tell them what to make. Over time, they developed the skills that they could make their own suggestions of what to make next. So one can imagine where this is leading, and that is you may be training as a medicinal chemist now, but you may not be doing a lot of medicinal chemists when you're actually graduated in, in, in industry. What you have to know is what to make and why to make it and how many resources to put into making a particular molecule because uh, you cannot compete with the FTE costs yeah. uh, that are floating around the world right now. And so 
Or, or even the aspect of automation too, right? Yeah, absolutely, there's automation as well. And so you have to be able to understand, you know, you, you still have to learn medicinal chemistry. Or, it's the same with biology. Now, you know, there are labs, whether in China, all over that can do cell assays in a way that is absolutely remarkable in their reproducibility. And so if you're a cell biologist, you have to be able to say, well, I can't do those kinds of assays where they now have robots doing it. I may like doing cell biology now that I'm in college, but when I graduate, I'm gonna to have to know a lot more about biology and pathways and pharmacology so that I know what assays are really gonna be the most insightful for studying the drug that we're particularly interested in. So again, it's just another example where you may be learning something in school now, but when you get to the real world, you may be doing something else, which is fine. Yeah. It's, it's the way of the world. Continuing on this topic of career progression, imagine the audience are a bunch of folks that are VP level and you're now in your first time being a chief scientific officer. What advice would you provide folks or perspective you would provide folks that are looking to make that jump from VP to C-suite? That's actually a tough question. <laughs> it's kind of uh, always nice to spend your time doing things that you ex know exactly how to do them. And at some point you say, you know, I don't know everything I'm getting involved with, but I can learn, yeah. right? And so you tend to spend a lot of extra time filling in the blanks and making sure that you do understand um, and have that time, that commitment of time to do it. But if you do, the transition from doing what you know exactly what to do to taking on more strategic and uh, global. It's cool. It's just a progression of, of everybody. And so, uh, but having said that, I'm going to disagree with myself. It's not a progression of everybody. Not everybody wants to, you know, go to that level. Right. Having spent years at every level, I still think fondly of the time that I was in the lab. And this was at a time when, you know, we were doing sequencing by hand and mouth pipetting radioactive <laughs> DNA <laughs> onto, onto glass gels that we would make by hand. So that was great. At every time you progress to another part of the industry, it's still great. And you just have to find where do you develop the most uh, satisfaction. And for me, it was to just keep going. Hmm. No, that's awesome. Perhaps as you juxtapose the last decade or two decades of drug development compared to the upcoming one to two decades of drug development, how do you think about the areas of unmet need that merit further investment and further pursuit from the broader scientific community? Let me just preface it by saying we need more drugs. People are, are dying and they will continue to die from disease. And uh, we need new ways of attacking some of these problems. While things like IO have made breathtaking contributions to cancer and will continue to do that, but there is still a need for new drugs in the area of cancer, in the area of arthritis, in the, it's just, it's metabolic. And so one has to kind of be aware that there's just a ton of need for people to come and, and help. Having described something that I think everybody understands, and that is there is a need for new drugs, but there is a need for new drugs more quickly. The technology allows us to move more quickly now. And so one has to look for enabling technologies uh, that allow us to identify novel targets, identify leads, move things more quickly through uh, discovery and even through development. Now one only has to look at what's happening right now uh, with coronavirus to know how quickly 
one would want to be able to say, you know, I think I know what to do, yeah. but it takes time. You know, if you're doing the old-fashioned vaccine, even that takes time. Moderna has an RNA or a, a cocktail of RNAs, even that will take time. Until someone thinks more creatively about, you know, how do we cut corners and cut times without giving on safety mm -hmm. or appreciation of efficacy. But there, is, there are or will be new ways to do things more quickly. And one has to be able to be open to explore new ways of doing that. And that's one of the things that got me so excited about Aranza, and that is that with this technology, one might be able to understand a lead compound a lot faster than one was able to do in, in big pharma. And so, yeah, this is one of, those, one of those opportunities to try and do something different and maybe quicker. That's great, Andy. Well, thank you so much for, for taking some time to chat with us today. I think you brought up a, a really interesting point around all that we can do in an industry to force ourselves to rethink how things are done with the application of everything that we have uh, at our disposal. So thank you for sharing that. It was, it was a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050pod. Again, that's Biotech2050pod. Until next time.